0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: It's like uh, just past 10.30, and the, the vibe is just picking up here at the club. And I'm watching as people are coming in, and it's really a mixture. I'm in Williston, North Dakota with Latino USA producer Rinaldo Leaños Jr. You've got, like, a lot of Latin American, Latina women who are coming in. We're sitting in a big but cozy booth at a restaurant with an interesting name. It's called Señor Egg. The restaurant is closed now. They've moved the tables out of the way, and the space is now turned into a club. Tonight, it's Latino night. There was nothing like this in Williston last time. And, and I can tell this place is gonna be popping in a matter of minutes. I first went to North Dakota about a decade ago. I was here reporting on the beginnings of the oil boom in the Western part of the state and its impact on the Fort Berthold Reservation. Back then, North Dakota was in the middle of a lot of change. In terms of Latinos and Latinas, Well, you might see one here or there, but tonight in Williston, there are a lot of them. I'm looking around this restaurant turned club and there are Dominican servers. There's a young Mexican DJ. There are couples, Latinos with white women, a queer couple. It's a really interesting vibe. The oil boom has lured thousands of Latinos into this region in recent years. The owner of this restaurant slash disco is David Garcia Ocampo. He's originally from Mexico.
2: Everyone has a dream. My dream was, like, to own a restaurant. Would it be here? No,
1: it wasn't the idea. As a teenager, David lived in Arizona, and there he worked in restaurants. He washed dishes, he cooked, then he was a manager. In 2013, David moved to Williston to open a restaurant. He spent several years here in Williston. But then he decided he wanted to do something different, something on his own, for his community. And that's why he opened Señor Egg in 2021.
3: Here we serve breakfast, lunch, and
2: dinner. So we mix it a little bit, Mexican food and American
1: food. The Latinos and Latinas that started coming to his restaurant told David... They wanted a space where they could come together and organize events like a Latino night where dancing would be the main thing.
2: I was like, all right, let's give it a try. Like, we didn't advertise it, and that was, like, Friday. All right, we decided to do it. Let's do it tomorrow. And people show up like
3: crazy. It's a small town. The word is spread out like crazy. We had, like, over 100 people in here. And
1: it just grew from there.
3: The second
2: time, we had like 160 people in here. There was a line at the door, people
1: trying to come in. Tonight, David is expecting a pretty good turnout. There's no doubt that Latinos and Latinas have changed and are changing the face of North Dakota. But living in North Dakota isn't easy. It's not for the faint of heart. The freezing winters, the hard working conditions, the dark, dark nights. So it begs the question, why are so many Latinos and Latinas coming to North Dakota? And how has that growth been received? The answer, as always, is complicated. From Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Inojosa. Today, ever since the oil, a look at North Dakota's oil and population boom, and the big role Latinos play in both of them. This is part one. There is some data that sticks with me, and I think this piece of data is going to stick with you. Because North Dakota saw an almost 150% growth rate of Latinos and Latinas between the years of 2010 and 2020. North Dakota had the biggest growth of Latinos in the country, and that's according to the US Census. And that growth is even bigger in Mackenzie County in the western part of North Dakota, and that's where producer Reynaldo Leanos Jr. and I were reporting this summer. What's driving this huge Latino population growth is an oil boom that started around 2008, turning North Dakota into the third biggest oil producer in the country.
0: Welcome to North Dakota, the state the recession forgot. The industry came here, and the politicians opened the doors wide open and said, come on in, and you just make us rich. And that's what's happened, of course.
4: Here in North Dakota, oil touches everything.
1: The oil and gas industry has created tens of thousands of well paying jobs, and it generates billions of dollars every year in North Dakota. But with oil, often there comes controversy. Among some communities, the extraction method, known as fracking, is considered deeply destructive, especially among environmentalists and Native American communities. And this is land that they've been living on since time immemorial.
4: Tonight, police moving in, forcibly arresting the remaining pipeline protesters in North Dakota.
0: A U.S. district court on Monday ruled the Dakota Access Pipeline must shut down within 30 days.
1: So in this episode, we take a deeper look at the tensions around this all-powerful industry, And next week, we're going to get to know who are the Latinos and Latinas driving this demographic shift in North Dakota and what challenges they face when trying to build a new community here. But first, we actually want to talk about politics. Yes, because the midterms are coming up, but also because during our summer reporting in McKenzie County, we noticed a very clear trend. We met a lot of Latinos and Latinas who work in the oil and gas industry and who have become Republican in recent years. This morning, when we headed out of our hotel and the sun was rising and the sky was pink and never-ending, there were a lot of trucks on the road already, but there was a kind of quiet And then when we pulled into a kind of nondescript parking lot, pretty industrial, right in front of us on a little piece of grass, there were bunnies jumping around. This city, Williston, has a population of about 32,000 people, and it's near the northern border of Mackenzie County. I first came to Williston a decade ago, and Williston itself has changed a lot it was basically a town that there was just one main road with a strip mall series of fast food places and hotels and such but this town has grown and it's played a huge role in the oil boom which means that there are a lot of Latinos and Latinas here and where we are this morning is in front of this industrial building. It's kind of nondescript, but we're meeting a young man here. His name is Andres Murillo. He's 20 years old. He looks a little bit like a slim and much younger Michael Moore, and he builds pumps for oil rigs. I'm from California. Mm-hmm. I was born over there, but I, both my parents are Mexican. Andres moved to North Dakota three years ago when he was just 17. Well, my brother
4: was living here at the time, so I moved over here uh, during my last semester of high school. And then that's when I went to college right after that because they gave me a two-year scholarship in Williston State College. And then I kind of dropped out after that and just kind of jumped from job to job, but I ended up landing this job pretty fairly easy. Andres says the money here has been really
1: good for him.
4: Like financially, I'm doing well. Um, I don't feel like I've been on the verge of not having enough compared to back home.
1: Did you feel like your parents were always a little bit like, mm, it's a little tight? It's
4: Yeah, definitely. Here, you don't feel that? Here, I've never felt that way compared to when I would live back home with my parents. They'd have a lot of money troubles in their business and whatnot. So I remember those times, but here,
1: it's like it's gone. What about the fields? Are you interested in going and working in the fields, the oil fields?
4: Yeah, I actually am. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing the fields at all. I just got to get a little bit of experience under my belt before I go ahead and do that. What's the attraction to going to work in the fields? Oh, definitely the money. (laughs) That's it.
1: What do you know about the money in the fields? What have you heard?
4: Uh, I've heard people getting paid 35 an hour and above. They'll work two weeks on, two weeks off, and some people have said they've gotten
1: a uh, $6,000 check in just two weeks. Let's put that into context. Workers in the oil extraction business here make over $57,000 a year on average. That's almost double than food or service workers. Andres tells me that North Dakota has given him the opportunity to be in a good place financially, and that he, like so many others, are investing in their futures with this extra cash. And then Andres says North Dakota has also been a place where he feels welcomed for his political beliefs. Well,
4: when I left California, I became Republican and I kind of switched over from liberal because I didn't agree with most of their ideas. I mean, if you believe in what you believe in, then... Hats off to you. Nobody's gonna tell you anything. Nobody's gonna scream at you for your opinion. I haven't met anybody that's told me that I'm dumb or that I'm just white because of the party that I'm going with. Everybody's just been pretty respectful here.
1: North Dakota is a predominantly red state. According to a Pew Research poll, almost 80% of adults in the state identify as Republican or lean Republican. How is it that you become a Republican?
4: It all started really with the 2016 election. I just kind of didn't agree with some of the stuff Hillary did. I agreed a little bit more with Donald Trump. And then over the years, I kind of
1: saw what he was doing and kind of liked it. During the 2020 presidential election, 65% of North Dakotans voted for Donald J. Trump. Trump was big on oil, and he wanted the U.S. to produce more. He was also pro-fracking, the aggressive extraction method that has made the oil boom in North Dakota possible. Trump made a stop in Fargo, North Dakota, in 2018.
4: In a few moments, I will sign... Two groundbreaking executive orders to continue the revival of the American energy industry
1: and jobs. During his presidency, Trump rolled back regulations on the oil and gas industry and signed executive orders that sped up drilling projects across the country. Trump rescinded water pollution regulations for fracking on both Native American and federal lands. And he limited states' abilities to block oil, gas, and other energy projects. Things haven't changed much under President Joe Biden either, despite his environmental agenda and his push for green energy. In fact, the Biden administration has surpassed Trump in issuing drilling permits on public land. Earlier this year, the administration also resumed oil drilling on federal land, something Biden said he wouldn't do while he was on the campaign trail. But Trump's positions on oil were not the only thing that drew Andres to support him. So you believe that there should be a wall built to keep Mexicans and other Latino and Latino Americans out? I mean, there should be a process.
4: I feel like it should be kind of reformed more so because I have seen that legal process not really work. Sometimes it'll take years before somebody can even come over from Mexico to the U.S. I feel like that should be reformed. I do feel like the wall should be built, but I also feel like there could be a difference in how people can get their citizenship here could be a lot better.
1: Your parents came without papers?
4: Uh, Yes. Then they became citizens. So... So if the
1: wall was built, they should not come is what basically you're like, yeah, no, if the the wall should be there and the wall should keep people like my parents out who came without papers, they should not have come. That's kind of how you feel? Well, if they didn't come here, I probably
4: wouldn't have gone through the experiences. So... Legally, they shouldn't have come. But... I mean, they ended up coming anyway, so what am I to tell them?
1: But you do see the contradiction, right? I do see the contradiction there. Andres believes that the economy was stronger under Trump. And he points out that gas prices and inflation were lower during his term. He says that if Trump were to run again for office, he'd still vote for him. He also says he likes Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and says he'd vote for him if he were to run. Latinos like Andres, who identify as Republicans, aren't anything new. Historically, Republicans have gotten about a third of the Latino vote since the 1970s. But there has been a shift in recent years arguing that more Latinos are openly identifying as Republicans, especially with the rise of Donald Trump. And here in North Dakota, a top political issue that voters care about a lot is the oil and gas industry. It's something their Republican governors and senators have campaigned on. They call for pumping out more oil and natural gas and for rolling back those federal regulations. The Secretary of State's office protects the security of our elections, opens the door to every new business,
4: and leads the way in ensuring our natural resources leave a legacy for our children and our
1: grandchildren. This is the voice of Michael Howe. He's the Republican nominee for Secretary of State for North Dakota. And right now, he's currently a state representative. But if he wins the Secretary of State position, he will be the one who is deciding about the elections. And like Trump, he markets himself as a businessman. Howe is expected to easily win his election this November. The hotel lobby where Reynaldo Leaños Jr., my producer and I, are staying in central Williston, it's a little bit empty because it's the middle of the afternoon here. But in the background, they've got Fox News 24-7. You see a lot of workers around here, a lot of people who look like they're involved in the oil business. And in fact, we're here to meet somebody who's part of that business her name is Marina Carrillo, and she pulls out a map, and she spreads it over a table here. And she's, well, terribly excited to show us what's on this map.
3: So all the lines that you see on, the, on here are pipelines. But some are by, by commodity. Some are CO2, some are crude oil, gas, um, hydrocarbon, water, and natural gas.
1: Seeing this map was incredibly revealing to me. The map displays exactly where different extractions are taking place here in North Dakota. And, well, it's kind of everywhere. I could just look at this for the longest time because it really goes to show what is happening mostly underground. I mean, it's just the part of this land that has not been touched by oil. You can find that easier than everything else that has been touched by oil because it's just covered with, like, little symbols for some kind of drilling. The thing is, you don't see what's happening in terms of the oil because it's happening underground, a lot of it. In fact, it's estimated that more than 16,000 wells have been drilled in western North Dakota since the oil boom started.
3: Where you see more drilling is where the more Hispanics are.
1: Marina is petite. She's got dark, black, curly hair with a really big smile and very energetic. She's originally from Mexico, and she's worked in the oil and gas industry for about seven years. And part of Marina's job is recruiting people to work in this industry. And most of those are Latinos and Latinas in recent weeks, there's been a workforce problem. The industry in North Dakota has had trouble recruiting people to work. And this has stalled the deploying of more drilling rigs across the state. And the thing is, is that oil jobs and demographic growth go hand in hand here in North Dakota. And Marina is part of this changing landscape. But for us, the best place to see this reality playing out Is where the oil wells actually are. So, coming up on Latino USA, we head to the rigs with Marina to see how oil and gas are extracted and also who benefits from it. Stay with us, no te vayas. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa. Shows like Latino USA are a proving ground and a launch pad for hosts like me. And you know, Latino USA literally changed my life. It's thanks to public radio stations that this podcast is here for you in its current form. Many of you may not be regular listeners to your local public radio station, but consider giving it a listen and you'll discover more shows like this one. And if you're so inclined, Help us, because many of these stations are in their spring-pledge drive. Help them expand their reach and service
0: by giving whatever works for you. And thanks. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software and the best part about Odoo, all Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com/latino. That's o d o o.com/latino.
1: Hey, we're back. And when we left off, we had just met Marina Carrillo. She's a recruiter for the oil and gas industry. She's originally from Chihuahua, Mexico, and she's really proud to be working in the oil and gas industry. So, she's going to take us now on what she calls a jobs tour in Williston. And the plan is for us to see firsthand the many layers of the oil and gas industry and all of the different jobs Latinos and Latinas are performing within this sector. All right, let's get back to the story. It's a gorgeous late afternoon in Williston and the sky is bright blue Producer Reynaldo Leanos Jr. and I find ourselves walking over to Marina's big white 4x4 pickup truck. I pull myself all the way up to the truck, and that's when we spot something that, well, it catches our eyes. Boy, you really did like Trump. <laughs> On the floor in the back seat of her truck is a big black floor mat. It reads, Trump 2020, keep America great. You're not, you're not hiding your politics, mujer. No. Wow, okay, that's very interesting. So, una Mexicana
3: who likes Trump. I'm sure.
1: Marina identifies as a Republican. It's not clear how many Latinos here in North Dakota actually identify as Republican, but there has been an increase in votes for Republican candidates since 2008. You are unabashedly a Trump supporter. Yes. And, and it, you have no problem being a Mexican-born immigrant Trump supporter.
3: No, no I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. And that's
1: all because of his position on oil?
3: Not, not just that, but I'm one of those persons that uh, I like things to be said straightforward and I don't like politicians, <laughs> and... You don't think
1: that Trump is a politician?
3: Not as much, not as much. He's a businessman. And you think that that helps you in terms of kind of
1: being in the vibe of North Dakota? The fact that you're a Trump supporter makes it a little bit easier?
3: Maybe if I would have been another place, I would have been more influenced by, by other ideologies but I know myself as well, because my parents were really upset about that.
1: So your parents were a little freaked out the, about the fact that you were supporting Trump. Is that
3: yes? And, th- and until after I told them that, just take away the feelings and what you actually think of that emotion. Then you get, you're gonna see what I'm seeing, and it took them a long time, but now then they understand.
1: We're driving along a main road, and we pull off to the side of the road and there is this huge towering rig. The metal rig is over a hundred feet tall. It's got men walking around. There's movement. It looks big and kind of menacing and kind of permanent. And this rig is set up to drill and look for oil. As many as one million barrels of oil are being extracted from North Dakota's ground Every single day, the rig shoots up into the clear blue sky, and there's also this pretty consistent soft hum coming from this rig. You can hear it in the quiet North Dakotan landscape. Now, there's the rig, but there's also portable trailers driving up and down this dirt road here. There's other machinery. There's other equipment scattered around. There's a trailer for the workers.
3: So the people that is working see their their hard hats. Mm -hmm. They are the floor hands.
1: Marina tells us that companies need to follow government requirements and regulations when they want to search and extract oil and gas as well as safety and environmental protocols. Can I ask you, so I see several men working. uh, About how much are they getting paid? Just a a roundabout.
3: Well, um, I think some depends on the company, but uh, they start about 30, on the 30s. Go to after the 40s or 50s an hour. Um, Most of the companies do rotations because they do not stop. They work 24-7. Meaning they rotate the crews. So uh, they're on like two weeks on, two weeks off on that uh, morning or night shift. So they work 12 hours. So after the 40 hours, they get paid the overtime.
1: But before any of this labor intensive work can start, companies need to find out who owns the land they want to drill on because there's money involved.
3: So just. Um, just by looking at the land, I can tell that this uh, this rig is set up in uh in a private property.
1: If someone agrees to work with these extraction companies, they get compensated for the use of their land. They usually sign leases and get royalties, sometimes in big amounts. They tend to get around 20% of the earnings. Those who benefit from these deals with oil and gas companies can be people who are private owners, but there's also the federal and state government, and there are also wells on indigenous communities.
3: I can just set up a rig wherever I want to. So, how long do you think this
1: rig has been up?
3: Um, I'll say uh, about three, three, four days. What? Yeah, they move really fast. And how long will it stay up?
1: Marina says it varies. Sometimes a rig will be in use for several days or even a couple of weeks. It comes down to whether there's in fact oil underground and if there is, how big that reserve is. After the drilling, the rig will be replaced with other machinery to extract the oil or natural gas from the ground. This is also a pretty short-lived process, no longer than just a few weeks. So you're going to tell me that like... A plot of land, which was just kind of grassy, pretty North Dakota grass for days, maybe a couple of weeks, will now be permanently transformed. Yes. Because of the oil. And I'm sure there are people who are like, it's like you're ruining the nature. Look what you're doing. You're coming. You're like arrasando. You're putting up, you know, uh, barbed wire fences. You know, you're just changing the whole landscape and you're not even staying long.
3: Yes, so with that is called the reclamation of the land. It's the last step. Once you're capped and once you're done with the well, you reclaim the land, meaning it will be exactly or better than what it was. That's the standard. It's either you leave it as it was or better. Can I just
1: ask you, is that always true 100% that the reclamation of the land really leaves it just the way it was?
3: They have to comply with the law. And if they don't, they will close their business or they have a really big fines.
1: But the science says it's impossible for the land to go back to what it was. When fracking is involved, trees, plants, other vegetation are essentially uprooted. And animals are impacted too because their natural habitat is destroyed. For example, it's been documented that bird species, that deer and bobcats have been displaced from the areas where there's fracking that goes on. The process of fracking involves injecting water, chemicals, and sand into the earth at super high pressures in order to break the oil or natural gas free from inside the deep rocks. And that can contaminate groundwater, it can also induce earthquakes, and it can expose people to inhaling toxic chemicals. Some Native American communities have long protested about how the use of fracking oil and gas are affecting their land. And they've led massive movements in recent history that have stopped or paused some big oil development projects, like the North Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. I documented this historic protest for Latino USA six years ago. And while I was at Standing Rock, I spoke with Tara Houska. She's a tribal attorney in Washington, D.C.
0: I mean, I never thought that there would be this coming together of hundreds of Indigenous nations against a single pipeline.
1: What I saw on the ground at Standing Rock was a protest movement that was led by Indigenous peoples. But... There were people from everywhere in the United States that were showing up to protest, and there were Latinos and Latinas there. Back to Marina and our tour, showing us all of the jobs that are available for Latinos and Latinas to take in the oil and gas industry. We sit down now to talk with Marina about the tensions with the Native American communities nearby. What do you say to critics who say, you're just here for the work? You're not thinking about the long term and the land. What do you say to them?
3: The majority of, of them, obviously, they care, about, they, they care about the land and then they care about their, their future and what are they going to give to the future generations, not just around here, but the, around the globe. And, and obviously we can all sympathize with that. However, they understand and they know the need for them to provide for their kids as well.
1: How do you respond to critics who are Native American who say, hey, what are you doing? Too many, too fast. And on the other side, you're depleting Mother Earth.
3: uh uh-huh. can And
1: I- can't, we have to protect her. So what do you say to that?
3: I don't know, God or Mother Earth, I don't know how you want to call it, and how the concentration of the majority of the the reservoir that is uh, uh, economically feasible for them to produce is in the reservation. I I found that ironic, and I think they're having the last laugh.
1: Marina has very strong feelings about the oil and gas industry. And then she tells me it's not just about the industry— there's something very personal about what this place, this moment in her life represents. She tells me that she lived in Missouri before moving to North Dakota in 2009 with her husband, who she tells me was abusive at the time. Marina says it was because of the economic opportunities that she found in North Dakota and especially in the oil industry that she was able to leave her husband, be safe and provide for her three children on her own.
3: It took me a lot of time, but only because of North Dakota, it helped me. I gained my freedom in North Dakota.
1: So for Marina, it was essentially about saving her life. It is very personal. And for a lot of people, Latinos and Latinas, they feel that in this state, oil and gas is actually an opportunity for a new beginning as a way to get ahead financially. But at the same time, the reality is that this industry has a dark side. It has impacted both the environment and Native American communities who have been here since way before the oil boom Ray and I are now in a car driving around with a woman named Lisa DeVille. She's an indigenous environmental activist, and she lives on the Fort Berthold Reservation. And it was on this reservation where I visited almost a decade ago to report on what the oil and gas industry's effects was having on this land. What I see now, after being away about a decade, is... Some parts of Fort Berthold have kind of stayed the same, like nothing has changed. And then there are other parts where I see some sprucing up. I see some development. I see new housing. I see a large Native American community center. So it's an interesting dynamic.
2: Because I want to show you something. Stations, so
1: Lisa sit- lives here on the Fort Berthold Reservation. About 20% of all of the oil that's produced in North Dakota comes out of the wells on this reservation. And oil has brought in about a billion dollars in tax revenue to Native American communities living here since the start of the boom. The communities that live on this reservation are the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nations. Here, it's known as the three affiliated tribes. And there are more than 17,000 members. Lisa and her husband, Walter, are going to take us around the reservation and show us what they say is the environmental damage that the oil and gas industry is causing here.
2: So this past year, since we've had so much rain, it's nice to see, you know, my... my The thing
1: about the reservation and North Dakota in the summertime is that there is green as far as the eye can see. This is a flat landscape, but it goes on forever. And that's exactly where Lisa and Walter decide to make a stop. So, Lisa, what does that represent to you, the fact that you've got this old-style rig and now you've got these other modern-looking rigs? I mean, you know, some people are going to say, oh, this is, this is progress. What do you see?
2: You know what? No matter what it is you disturb the earth, no matter you extract, it's still going to do something. I still see environmental destruction. And
1: yet people from the oil and gas industry will say, but, but, but look, we're, we're changing things. It's, it's less of an eyesore.
2: Oh, and we got the safest way to do it. That's what they say. Yep. I'm going to show you this is a new rig right here. We see a bunch of junk coming off it.
1: We pull over on the side of the road and we see some black smoke coming out of this work site. Lisa talks about how concerned she is about this smoke and about the flaring, the flames that come out of the rigs from the natural gas that's burning because, she says, they pollute the air and they can cause respiratory issues.
2: It's been going on for the past 12 years and without regulations, without, you know, making sure that we're holding industry accountable. Industry has more voice than our own people have here.
1: Lisa says "Mandarin." This town here is a tight-knit community of about 700 people. There's a gas station in town. There's a school. There's a small community center. That's pretty much it in this town, although it's surrounded by nature. Lisa tells us that she's fed up with the environmental destruction happening around her community. And she says the current tribal chairman, Mark N. Fox, is part of the problem. He's been the chairman since 2014.
2: What he's doing is oil is everything. Oil and gas is everything. All is cut some red tape. You know, we'll, we'll be all right. Not understanding that really that what we do today, our children are left with it and we're affecting everybody downstream.
1: We reached out to Mark Fox for comment, but did not hear back. Before Mark Fox, the chairman in charge of the Fort Berthold Reservation was Tex Hall, I met Tex Hall about a decade ago when I was here reporting for my PBS show called America by the Numbers. Tex was also a big supporter of the oil and gas industry. This is from when I spoke to Tex Hall for my documentary in the year 2014.
0: Our land has been stole. treaties broken. We had alcoholism, unemployment, poverty. We've had some bad things in our past. Now we've got another chance. The creators give us a blessing. More than 1,200
1: wells are pumping over 295,000 barrels of oil per day, almost a third of North Dakota's total production. Four years ago, the tribe was $125 million in debt. Today, with the money received from its wells, the tribe is debt-free. Shortly after my visit those years ago, Tex Hall was put under an investigation by the tribal council and he lost his re-election bid for tribal chairman. Lisa has been raising awareness of the dangers of fracking for a while now. She's written op-eds, she's spoken on panels, and she ran for local office on the state level of North Dakota back in 2020. She lost. Her Republican challenger won almost 70% of the vote.
2: We used to be able to come down here and pick Juneberry's plums, Choke cherries, do all that, all the way through my grandmother's land on this side, all the way through my husband's land on the other side.
1: We stand and survey the land that goes on forever, the different colored grasses. And Lisa talks about growing up with this land, taking care of it, being fed by it. She talks about the memories of those times that she spent out here with her grandmother. When you say that you used to be able to pick everywhere, is it? are you saying that you can't do that now?
2: It's hard, it's hard to find. Yeah, a lot of it's hard to find. It's not like how it used to be plums. You should just go and pick them right off the tree. Can't do that anymore.
1: She says her grandmother used to tell her that one day people would come onto their land and destroy it.
2: And my grandmother one that told me that this was going to be here one time. If you don't get your education, you're not going to know what it is that you're signing or what you're reading.
1: And that's exactly what happened to Lisa's grandmother. Lisa says people from an oil company showed up at her grandmother's door back in 2008. They promised her money and all she had to do was sign a lease that would allow the company to be on her land for a while to extract natural resources. Lisa says there were no lawyers present, just her grandmother and oil representatives. So she wasn't fully aware of what she was signing. Lisa says her grandmother struggled with what, to do, but she ultimately signed because she hoped the money might help her family. And it did. Lisa says this happened across the reservation, and many people signed because they wanted to better their economic prospects for generations to come. In fact, Lisa and her husband, Walter, also lease some of their land to the oil and gas industry, and they also get paid for that. We're making our way down the road and then we pass by something that really stands out here on the reservation. It's a massive, new, big, two-story building. I mean, big. And it's filled, covered with glass windows. It opened earlier this year. It's a school. And then a little ways down the road, we pass a firehouse that was built last year. Also, big, bright
2: and new. Everybody wanted a fire hall, you know, that was the most important need here in Mandarin because of that we were having all these fires from oil and gas and it was taking a whole hour and a half for them to get to the fire from like 30 minutes away all the surrounding communities.
1: The community wanted the fire station because last year an oil site caught on fire and it burned down more than 800 acres on the reservation. We keep on going and just Down the road, Lisa and her husband, Walter, pull over again, this time to point out something in the distance.
2: See how close this pipeline is to those families?
1: About 100 feet away from a mobile home is an oil pipeline that she says is just way too close to the family's homes. Lisa worries that a pipeline could explode or leak at any moment. In fact, there have been several crude oil spills just this year.
2: That's how close our people are living to these um, pipelines. Our pipelines here are like the blood veins of Mother Earth. I mean, it's, it's really, really terrible. I mean, they're putting them anywhere and everywhere. So we got to worry about the contamination of our aquifers all the time.
1: Lisa says for her community of Mandan people, water is life
2: water sacred we use it for everything when you're when you're in your mother's womb that's what you're in water so i mean where where are we going wrong it's because money is replacing our identity
1: coming up on latino usa we continue our toxic tour with lisa and we hear about how she's trying to bring change to her community stay with us no te vayas Hey, we're back. Before the break, we met up with Lisa DeVille, an indigenous environmental activist. She's taking us around the Fort Berthold Reservation to see some of the environmental impact that the oil and gas industry is having on her community. Okay, let's get back to the story. We're in Lisa and her husband Walter's pickup truck. And we're driving slowly through the reservation, just taking in all of the amazing nature. It feels like right now there's a tremendous amount of abundance. When I was here a decade ago, it was November, it was brown, it was cold. Mm -hmm. There's so much green right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you put together um, the notion of this abundant nature that you're looking at. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my goodness, there's an oil rig, right? Walter points out that some of the plants that we're looking at are actually medicinal plants.
2: Some say, you know, well, our medicines are contaminated, you know, but we still
1: use them, you know,
3: to help ourselves.
1: When you're on the reservation, you understand how deeply people feel connected to the nature all around them. Because sage plants, sweetgrass, peppermint, all of this, they're important to Lisa and Walter's community because they are part of their culture and their traditions. They use them in cleansings and in ceremonies. You know, when somebody asks, you know, for prayers or whatnot, you know, we, we try to do the best we can with what we have. There's also a lot of livestock everywhere you look like there's like what 50 cows were there and a stone's throw literally i don't know three four or five blocks yep. long with right there, there's there's a flare yep. there's towers there's drilling and it's just like ah they're drinking water yep. a stone's throw you know i mean you you just have to ask the question right
2: with every flare with every leak with every venting we are contributing to climate change and global warming. So that's the reason why we're having more severe acti- um, weather activity. I mean, the flooding, all around and the severe heat. I mean, I keep saying that to my tribal, my council, you know, we're adding more. Um, and our, our earth is burning up.
1: The oil and gas industry itself, as well as all of the gases that come out of our cars and factories and so many other places, account for more than 40% of greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale. The United States is the second biggest polluter in the world, second only to China. Lisa says that in addition to the environmental concerns she has, there are other problems that have popped up with the oil boom. That same morning, right before we met her, she had just come back from a funeral.
2: My son's um, one of his good friends. They play basketball together. They all grew up together. But um, yeah, he overdosed. Yeah. Then we just buried my my niece um, Wednesday. She overdosed in Bismarck, and he overdosed in Minot. So no matter where you go, it's it's here.
1: When I was here a decade ago or so, the problem with overdoses were with people shooting heroin cocaine overdoses it was a very specific kind of drug because there was a lot of cash suddenly on the reservation and narcos knew and saw a market they wanted to take advantage of but now what's happened on the reservation like in the rest of the country they're battling an opioid epidemic in this community but for Lisa it all started with what I remember seeing those years ago
2: I noticed that a lot of man camps coming in and, you know, uh, more people, more issues, you know, more drugs, more alcoholism, prostitution, human trafficking. What comes with oil and gas? More money, more problems, basically.
1: Among those who came to North Dakota to work in those years were more and more Latinos and Latinas. So when I was here 10 years ago... Uh You could see the Latinos, Mexicans, oh, yeah. the work. You know, what do you see now on the reservation, and their role mm-hmm. as workers in the oil business?
2: You know, what, I see a lot of them, the 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 manual hard labor people. Like, but I never see a lot of them in the executive. I see a lot of the um, white people in that power. I, I that's what I see, anyways. But still. The, the challenging most challenging thing is that seeing the invasion of people coming in that don't understand how we're connected to land and what this land means to us.
1: So you don't look at Latinos coming and doing the oil work here as necessarily a part of the problem?
2: You know what? I'm going to say this they're here to work and i know that's what they're only here for and so anyone that comes here because of oil that's only what they're here for do they care about the land i think about this about everybody that comes here do they care about the land so no matter who comes here it's all about the money not sitting down and understanding why this land is important to us
1: so for you anybody who is in the rush to come right now into north of north dakota for you essentially all of them are a little bit suspect. Yeah, yes. Maybe there are good people who want to come and do activism and help you, and so you see them as allies. But everybody else who's coming to make money, money. with this oil rush, yeah. you're like, we're not on the same page.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I do get along with everybody. And I know that everyone has to make a living, especially in today's world because of the inflation and all that.
1: But it seems like you're saying... Okay, we understand you want to make money, but see that we want to be protected. That's And and you're not even willing to spend the money to even see if if yes. we're protected at the basic level.
2: Yes, that's what that's what it all comes down to is holding industry accountable. And uh, protecting the only land that we have left.
1: We are winding up our afternoon on the reservation. Lisa and her husband, Walter, know the final spot that they want to take us on this toxic tour.
2: You want to go down there? Do you want to go down there?
1: We park and there's a hill that's very steep and it goes down very quickly. And I need to go change my shoes because now I realize I've got to go down that hill with my producer, Ray, following Lisa. So right now, where are we where are we headed right now?
2: Right now, we're on a location of where the one million gallon Bryan spill happened back in two thousand fourteen, and where the where it spilled is down this hill here.
1: One of the things people here fear the most is a leak, a pipeline leak. In fact, there was a leak of more than a million gallons of salt water while they were drilling here. It destroyed any vegetation that it touched, and the cleanup effort took weeks. We're walking down this rocky path, trying to not lose our balance, trying to get to the foot of the hill. All we see around us are green trees. And anything, if you miss a step here, you're going to go tumbling down. So it's a beautiful but, you know, precarious hike. But Lisa really wants us to see the lasting damage that can happen from a brine spill. She tells us about how she first learned about the spill that day.
2: I got a phone call from one of my friends. She said, I don't know, but something's going on back here. She said, all those trees right there were all brown. See like that tree back there? Looks brown, kind of brownish. Yeah, that's kind of like how it was. But when they chopped them down, you could see how the, the tree was dying it was dying from the um, outside in.
1: Immediately to our left, we can spot a row of brown trees. Trees that absorbed some of that brine. You have all of this green, all of this green, all of this green, and then right here, you start seeing, wait, that's a dead tree, that's a dead tree, that's a dead tree, that's a dead tree, and there's like a bunch of dead trees.
2: It went all the way down It went along this little stream that comes down. Just right around the bin here is our intake where we get our drinking water.
1: At the time of the spill, one of the main concerns was whether or not the brine had reached the nearby lake because the lake provides drinking water for communities all around. Two days after the spill, the Environmental Protection Agency said that there was no confirmed reports of contaminated water. But Lisa says the damage left behind is still evident by these dead trees and some of the dead vegetation. And she says it's been eight years already. Lisa also brings up that a spill like this can literally happen anywhere else on the reservation, and that worries her. Lisa says seeing the evidence of the environmental damage all around her is what keeps her going. So after all of these years, that's why she's decided she's gonna run for office again. So you're doing a lot of this activism. You're centering the earth, but you're also centering democracy and politics. You're running for office. So what do you see for the future in this area?
2: I wanna make sure that our environment's protected. I'm hoping we have more indigenous um, people at, um, at the legislation or at every level of government.
1: And in terms of the kind of demographics of North Dakota, where the Latino, Latina population has grown triple digits, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: how do you see them in what's the future of your state?
2: I don't know. Are they here to stay? You know, I don't know if they're here to stay. They're here, you know, because of the oil. And that's what I see a whole lot of. And I hear a lot of that, that they're they're like us, but we don't actually get to sit down and visit with them. But I wouldn't mind working with them. I wouldn't mind working with all people.
1: Lisa raises a pretty important and central question. Are Latinos and Latinas planning to stay in North Dakota? And well, it's a difficult question. There's no real easy answer. What we do know is that the oil industry offers well-paying jobs. It offers an opportunity to build a better future. It's also a place where conservative Latinos say they feel welcome. But working in the oil and gas industry is hard. The winters here are frigid, to say the least. So some Latinos, like Miguel Castillo Perez, say they can't actually wait to leave. Sadly, he says, the industry, though, feels like a trap. But other Latinos are calling North Dakota home, and they're committed to becoming a part of the social fabric of this state that's growing at the fastest pace in the entire country. Latinas like Yolanda Rojas.
0: Story after story, I would hear people say, I'm just here for work because this isn't home. So then I started asking, why is this not home? Why can't they call Watford City home? It's my home. I love it here. I have discovered a beauty. It's a peaceful place.
1: Next week on our show, we'll meet some of the Latinos and Latinas who are changing North Dakota. Stay tuned for part two of our reporting next week. This episode was produced by Reynaldo Leaños Jr. and edited by Marta Martínez. It was mixed by Rosa Nacaban. Research and fact-checking for this episode by Elizabeth Lowenthal Torres. The Latino USA team includes Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Daisy Contreras, Mike Sargent, Julieta Martinelli, Victoria Estrada, Alejandra Salazar, Patricia Zulbaran, and Julia Rocha, with help from Raúl Pérez. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our director of engineering is Stephanie Lebeau. Our senior engineer is Julia Caruso. Our associate engineers are Gabriela Baez and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Lunar. Listen to all of our Latino USA podcast episodes on Amazon Music. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. In the meantime, look for us on your social media. And remember, no te vayas. Ciao.
0: Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide and Hispanics in philanthropy.
1: Wow, 50 cows. Oh my God, I'm so New York. I've never seen 50 cows. Not in Manhattan. Let's bring 50 cows to Manhattan. 50 cows to Manhattan. All right.